Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Dementia Brother. And I did it because um, I didn't. I don't think that the forum that uh, Mark Kansian hosted was the best representation of, of Force Design 2030. So, um, and it's that was our point of departure, was that. And so. You know, the representations that the 1st Marine Division and 1 MEF, 2nd Marine Division, 2 MEF, to include the Air Wings and the Marine Logistic Group and everybody in there. I mean, the suggestion that neither one of those were impacted by the transformation that the Commandants um, set loose in the Marine Corps, um, I think is ridiculous. And so when you hear people saying stuff like that, it begs the question, you know, do they even know what they're talking about? Are, are they even read into it? And if they're not, then us taking that up um, and uh, then, yeah, I don't, then we just go from uninformed to reacting to uninformed. So I didn't know that that's a good thing to do. Um, here's what I'm curious about, though. On the back side of that. I'm curious about the combat developmental process. I'm also curious about. I'm not an artillery guy. <clears throat> I'm also curious about some of the things that Mr. Work said. Do the arty guys believe that? Do the arty guys believe that this mix? Because I'll tell you this. Precision guided munitions. Um. Precision guided munitions, you know, are great at some things. They're not great at other things. Okay. So, um, if the target's moving, do you have the kind of guidance system on the munition that will track the target? Not all of them do. A little bit more expensive. 
So, I mean, there's all kinds of other questions. If it's a static target, like a hypersonic missile is trying to hit Mount Rushmore, not a problem. You can dial that shit in. What about if it's dynamic? It's not nearly as useful. I, and I would tell you this. In Afghanistan, when I was there, we shied away from using, you know, these things. Because, A, they took forever to launch. Now, I know that, that, that it's a different situation or hopefully would be a different, much more permissive environment to do that. But, um, and if the target was moving at all, the process for them to recalibrate it, you know, took, took a long time too. So, um, I, and I know, I know the theaters are probably not comparable, but it does have its limitations. So what do the Arty guys say about that? So I'm curious, I'm curious about, I'm curious about those two things specifically. And then what I would, I would, my preference would be that, um, we have a discussion about the um, about what is the current position of the Marine Corps, and I couldn't tell you. That. I couldn't tell you that right now. Where is the Marine Corps today, <clears throat> and you know what came out in Forces on Twenty Thirty Version Two? So anyway, I would feel much more comfortable with that. Um, The next thing, it's uh, um, last night, I, and I and I rarely do it, but I was a friend of mine passed away from uh, grammar school. Uh, we went to grammar school together. We went to high school together. Played sports together. Um, Keith Fonts was his name, and um, Keith's dad was a football coach at our high school. Mel. And uh, he had two brothers, uh, Kevin and Chris. Chris has passed away. He was the youngest. Kevin's, Kevin was a great receiver in high school and, uh, and in, you know, did well in college too. And um, um, so I, I got a notification that somebody had posted something about him, and it actually turned out to be a, a, a football pitcher from eighth grade and um as catholic schools tend to do it our head football coach at the high school organized all the elementary schools that went and all, all the elementary schools went to eighth grade we all played tackle football and that was a feeder system into high, his high school machine and our our high school we had great football teams but we started playing against each other when we were in fifth grade right yeah, that's how I, when we went to high school, we knew each other because we played against each other in all these sports. Starting when we had JV football, fifth and sixth graders, varsity football, seventh and eighth graders. And we had the same team for baseball and basketball. And so we had pretty good sports teams. But anyway, um, I was looking and then um, I saw that my friend, Jess Humphreys, um, posted that his uncle, Cal, um, who I had the great privilege to interview here on All Marine Radio, uh, had passed away at the age of 95, I think. And so uh, I will play that interview today. And uh, it is one of the, uh, one of my favorites of all time, if you've never heard it. Um, Cal grows up in the Midwest, 
and winds up in the Marine Corps. Didn't know the Marine Corps from anything and winds up in the Marine Corps and then winds up on Iwo Jima. And, uh, you know, you, uh, it's a wonderful interview and with the piece of American history. And so, uh, sad day, um, that, uh, you know, he passes away. Um, but lived an exemplary life, uh, served his nation and raised his family. And so, uh, and I, I'm forever thankful to Jess for, um, for putting me in touch with Cal and allowing me to interview him because it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, awesome interview. So you'll hear that this morning after we take a look at the news. So good morning to you. Here's a thought. I mean, talk about laziness in our nation, right? Just the things I see. Does anybody ride a bike anymore? Every bike I see here in Southern California is an electric bike. Yeah. So you get on it. You don't even have to pedal your fat ass around anymore. Yeah, it's not even any exercise riding your bike. Mm-hmm. You get on it, you flip the switch, off you go, you brake it, as in apply the brakes, and you go zooming around. You don't have to. You don't have to pedal your your lazy ass. Doesn't even have to pedal your bike anymore. Yesterday, I needed to go shopping for some stuff, so I go to Target. Now, I, I was a bag boy in my life. My first real job was bagging groceries in like 1976, 77, something like that. And I did it till I went away to college and I made good money. I was part of a union, the Northern California grocery, grocery clerks union. Yeah. And I mean, then I was making like six fifty three an hour. Like I was like making bank and then triple time, time and a half on Sundays, triple time on holiday. My mom never saw me on Thanksgiving or Christmas. <laughs> anyway, um, when I tell, that's that's where I learned never to ask somebody if they were pregnant or not. Yeah, I was a like, that was not a, yeah, no kidding. I'm I'm pushing this woman's groceries out to her car back in the day when we did that, right? So the brown paper bags, and I was a good, I was a good bag boy, right? I was good. I had good hands, so I could do that stuff fast. I knew when to double bag stuff, so the wine or the booze wouldn't fall through. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I put all these groceries in this cart. We're walking out to her car. She's got her car keys out, and I say, and I'm 19, 18, 19 years old. I say, so when are you due? And she looks at me and she says, I'm not pregnant. And I went, oh, I'm sorry. And we weren't like exactly next to our car when it happened. So it's not like I could ditch the groceries. And we still had like a, maybe 20 yards to walk in silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, um, <laughs> that's a painful, that's a painful lesson to learn um so 
But one of your tasks was, and this is, we didn't have cart collecting sites, right? So people just left them where they left them. You went out, you, you know, you gathered up the carts. And then, you know, you had to learn how many you could push at one time, right? And you had to push those things back in the store. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. They have machines that do that. Uh-huh. Some dude, it's like R2-D2. I don't know how the machine follows them. It must, it must have some homing device or something. I don't know. It's too complicated for me. But you don't even have to do that anymore. Like, we're the laziest. And, and like, whenever, you, you know, pretty soon, you're not going to get, gonna get up and go to the bathroom. Just apply this device. And it'll suck all your stuff out. You won't even have to get your fat ass out of bed. Yeah, it's disgusting. But the bike thing is like crazy to me. We've taken a form of exercise and turned it into nothing. So pretty soon, you know, you're going to be able to live your whole life and never stop playing video games and never get off your couch. What an exciting thought, huh? Yeah, I think so too. Whitney Houston sings the national anthem this morning. It is Friday after all. So good morning to you. It is the 20th day of May. Yeah, we're almost in June. How about that? And um, good morning to you. This is uh, dedicated to PFC Cal Humphrey, a uh, Iwo Jima veteran, a veteran of the Marine Corps in World War II, 
Uh, dare I say a proud American, the uncle of Jess Humphrey and uh, the brother of Robert Humphrey, who served on Iwo Jima as a lieutenant. Yeah, both brothers there at the same time. Uh, this is dedicated to him. Uh, congratulations on a great life and fair winds and following seas. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Time to check the weather. Currently yeah, I have my new slick weather system. Don't ask me about it, okay? It's kind of it's kind of white trashish, but whatever. It is mostly sunny at 78 in Quantico already. Down the coast at Cherry Point, it is mostly sunny and 87. Just flip the digits. Yeah, how about that? Uh, 29 Palms, sunny at 75. Camp Pendleton. Cloudy and 60. Camp Smith in Hawaii is dark cloudy 76. In Okinawa, it is dark cloudy 77. Manila, 
dark, raining, and 77. In Darwin, dark, cloudy, and 78. Currently at the home of All Marine Radio, it is fog in 59. Going to be cool here today. 66 degrees. Look, what the hell? Tomorrow, 67. Sunday, 68. Monday, 71. Tuesday, 73. That is a look at your weather here on a here on a Friday. The um, all right, top stories. I just saw something flash right across my news pro my news feeder. Twitter reacts to hearing witness saying men can get pregnant. Okay, let me explain that to you. If gender is not associated with your biology, okay, stay with me now. See what I'm saying? Of course men can get pregnant. Everybody can get pregnant. Your dog can get pregnant. Your male dog can get pregnant. Identifies as human, identifies as female, yada, yada, yada. Okay? Mm -hmm. So here's how the logical syllogism goes. I identify as a male. male therefore, males can get pregnant. <clears throat> yeah, come to the light, okay? Figure it the fuck out. Um, crazy, crazy. Uh, top story starts in stripes. Polish prime minister calls for permanent bases in NATO's east. Yeah, Germany. Why are we fucking around in Germany anymore? I've been saying this for a while. I'm not a big fan of the German. They've got to figure their shit out. All right. But the front is further to the east. The bases should be further to the east. Germany's a history lesson. Poland is prepared to construct new bases to host more NATO forces and other countries along the alliance's eastern flank ought to follow suit. Prime Minister Matthews Morawiecki told security leaders gathered in Warsaw, quote, permanent bases of allies should be established in NATO's eastern flank countries. Poland is ready to build such bases to include light infantry units on a permanent basis. So that in the news. <clears throat> Other headlines. U.S. to send Ukraine more than more howitzers and in the new 100 million military aid package. So got that going for it. Senate passes 40 billion, 40 billion dollars of aid for the Ukraine. And in a race to eliminate every standard possible, the Navy is drawing up plans for fleet operations. I'm sorry. More mustache freedom, Air Force proposal would give facial hair more room to grow. Yeah, a, a culture with no standards. There is no standard that stand that can stand the test of time. Airmen aspiring to be mustachioed, your time may have finally come. Draft guidance would allow Air Force members to grow their mustaches a quarter inch past the corners of their lips. Loosening the current policy that requires the mustache to be closely cropped and fit within the top of the mouth. 
The grooming policy has been lambasted for years by some airmen, particularly ones with small mouths as too limited. What the fuck, man? I'm not even going to. Come on. Sorry, I can't do it. Um, <clears throat> top headline in the Wall Street Journal, U.S. stocks turn lower as volatile trading continues. All three major indexes on track to extend streaks of weekly losses. Uh, next headline, China unexpectedly cuts key rate as growth crumbles. China's central bank cut a benchmark interest rate, a shift that economists said would likely help the more bowed housing market, but bring only limited relief to the struggling economy. China, if you notice China keeping a relatively low profile in the world, right? Nothing to see here. Um, next headline, Ukraine will fight until all Russian forces are expelled, their military intelligence chief says. Kiev must reclaim territory in the Crimea and the east effectively seized by Russia in 2014, according to Major General Kirillyo Budinov. So, um, some interesting stories in the news today about the Russians. Uh, top headline, New York Times. Russia vows to halt gas exports to Finland as the war's fallout has spread. Gerhard Schroeder, former German chancellor, is in the crosshairs of the German people. He has been a Russian apologist. He was the uh, chairman of the board of the Russian oil giant Rosneft. And the German people have also taken away his office and some other perks that they provided to him. Mm -hmm. So that's in the news. Next headline, Russia is moving towards dropping the age limit for military service. What? Holy shit. Yeah, that's interesting because the story's coming. Uh, the, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian intelligence service is releasing recorded conversations that are um, of Russian soldiers talking about deserting deserting with their commanders, that they've been given World War II rifles, uh, no night vision goggles, that, that this whole thing is a joke. And so, interesting little, when you're operating in the clear, um, yeah. and some of these are cell phone conversations. Yep. Um, top story in the Washington Post, why Biden hasn't killed Trump's China tariffs to make imports cheaper. So that's one story as the president heads towards the Pacific, right? Uh, next story, Biden's security official arrested on South Korea trip and is accused of assault. And then there's an, the, the, the top piece on Ukraine is Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov tries to keep the Kremlin's, Kremlin's allies at its side. 
Uh, a couple interesting stories uh, in USNI News. The cruiser USS Vicksburg, nearly finished with its modernization program, right, is now set for decommissioning. Uh, next story. The Navy plans to release the George Washington suicide investigation next year. The Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy tells Congress. Next year? It's May, for God's sakes. How long does it take to gather the evidence and, and tell Congress this is why we believe these, these sailors took their own lives? Evidently a long time. Um, next story. Swedish officials asked the Pentagon to increase the U.S. naval presence in the Baltic Sea. The Baltic, now a NATO possession. Holy shit. Here's an interesting story. Russian hypersonic missiles underperforming in the Ukrainian conflict, according to a NORTHCOM spokesman. The Kremlin's most advanced missile systems are not operating effectively in Russia's conflict against the Ukraine. Air Force General Glenn Van Herc said on Wednesday before the Senate Armed Service Committee's Strategic Forces Subcommittee, the Russians have had challenges with some of their hypersonic missiles as far as accuracy. He judged the missiles were underperforming. Despite Russia's overall inaccuracy in firing all of its missiles, John Plum, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, said the sobering reality is that the estimated 1,500 missiles Russia has fired since February 24th targeted Ukrainian civilians. How about that? The Russians are shit, honestly. Um, top headline Marine Corps Times, what's new in Navy and Marine Corps unmanned boats? That's there. And then top five stories in early bird. Uh, number one, at least nine troops or vets charged in domestic extremism cases since the Capitol riot. So extremism in the military, big problem, right? One of the Secretary of Defense's major concerns. Okay, you're talking about 1.4 million on active duty or thereabouts. Nine publicly reported current or former service members charged with crimes related to violent or supremacist leaning extremists. Two of them were recent Marine Corps veterans charged in a 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I think nobody was convicted in that case, if my memory serves me correct. And former Marines are called civilians now. So...
Yeah. Again, this thing in the DOD that affects what? Easily less than 100 people when you add everything together. This is a major problem. It's just garbage, you know? What the fuck? Uh, Soldiers facing discrimination from state laws. Now I think we're talking about abortion here. Uh, Could request transfers under a draft army policy. Um. If they feel state or local laws discriminate against them based on gender, sex, religion, race, or pregnancy, according to two sources with the direct knowledge of the plans, they can request to be transferred. Um, Lasers, water landings, crewless operations, upgrades are coming for the C-130 family. C-130 been around forever and a workhorse. Workhorse. Uh, next, commander of a squadron got relieved. Nobody cares. Israel launches Edge of Tomorrow. Sounds like a Disney event, doesn't it? Edge of Tomorrow to improve lethality and bring in new technology. The Israelis, yeah, when they talk about new technology, we're talking about things that nobody else is doing most of the time. You know, they're pretty cutting edge, and they c- tend to get it to market in a hurry, too. Uh, headlines from the Ukrainian war. Here are the high-end weapons President Zelensky hopes the new Ukrainian aid bill will provide. Okay, so we're talking about the $40 billion. The bulk of the funding in the pipeline, $34.7 billion, is allocated towards Ukrainian military aid. Mark the Largest tranche yet, yeah, look it up, T-R-A-N-C-H-E, tranche, yet from Congress. We are looking at additional high-end systems that would provide new capabilities, said Jessica Lewis, an assistant secretary of state for political military affairs. Lewis declined to specifically identify systems. Senator John Barrasso and Representative Jason Crow both met with Zelensky on separate trips, subsequently told Defense News he now is seeking long-range rocket artillery, more sophisticated drones, and anti-ship weapons. So, there you have it. Next. Ukrainian troops surrendering in Maripol have been registered as prisoners of war. Russian parliament to consider allowing over 40s to sign up for the military. Never a good sign. Ukraine is getting a battalion's worth of artillery. And in the new $100 million aid package that is in addition to the $40 billion. The package is the equivalent of American battalions worth of artillery, 18 115 millimeter howitzers, 18 vertical tactical vehicles to tow them, and 18 artillery tubes, along with three A and slash 
TPQ-36 counter-artillery radars, according to Press Secretary John Kirby, who's evidently headed to the White House. So, that in the news. General Milley speaks with top Russian general days after post-Ukraine invasion call between Austin and the Russian defense minister. And then the New York Times is running an article on evidence that shows how Russian soldier executed civilian men in Bukha. So that is a look at the news today. Um, What you're going to hear next is um, an interview I did with Cal Humphrey. And it's, he passed away, I want to say on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it's one of the, uh, the most favorite interviews I've ever done here on All Marine Radio. And um, the interview happens because I served with Jess Humphrey. I knew Jess's brother, who was older than him. Uh, he was an instructor at, at the time, Amphibious Wars, Warfare School. And back in Quantico when I was teaching at the basic school and at the infantry officer course. And so we met this guy named Humphrey who was, who was smart, you know, um, and he had, he had this great reputation. And, um, so I meet Jeff serving at one man. And um, I have to find the right interview. And um, so Jess and I would talk about history and things like that, and and as we are good friends. And so um, he asked me once, he said, uh, would you ever want to interview my uncle? Or I may have said something. And he said, well, I will check with him. And he said he'd love to. And so lo and behold, um, this interview happens. And for me, I mean, these things are like, I don't even know how to describe them. Um, there are these wonderful experiences where, you know, you meet, uh, a, I mean, a living piece of American history. And, um, and so that's, that's what, that's what you're going to hear in this interview. And, um, again, he's a member of the greatest generation and just uh, just a, a a great piece of American history. So, um, with all that said, um, this is Cal Humphrey, United States Marine Corps, Iwo Jima veteran, here on a Friday edition of All Marine Radio. <laughs> 
734 here on a Thursday morning. 934 in the Midwest, where uh, my guest is from. Uh, he is uh, none other than Cal Humphrey. Cal, first of all, uh, thanks for taking time out of your day and joining us here on All Marine Radio. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Well, that's uh, that's awesome. What do you, uh, first, of all, um, first of all, we need to learn about you, okay, so we can know if we can take you seriously. Um, you were born and raised where? Well, I'll tell you what, I got my discharge out so I could remember myself <laughs> what the hell happened to me. <laughs> I was born in, in, uh, in Portia, Kansas, in 1925, and then we moved just to, uh, uh, St. Joe, Missouri. The folks moved to St. Joe, Missouri. I was just a child. And that's where, where I grew up pretty well. We, we really moved to Mound City. We did a little town north of St. Joe, but. We grew up in that area. And how many brothers and sisters? I had two sisters and two brothers. Oh, so five families and a kid. That's a respectable number, right? Well, back in the 30s, that was kind of a small family. You know what I was going to say? In the 50s, in the 60s, we had four. And I looked at my mom and dad like, well, what's wrong? Why The Seymours have eight. Yeah. You know, the Demers, they have 11. Like, what the hell? Four? Are you kidding me? Are you guys... Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of like we were, you know. The we were the smallest probably in, in the area. There was eight, nine, ten, even up to fifteen. And the hell of it was, most of us lived in two room houses with no lights, no electricity, no water, no running water. You know. How did that work? Well, it was worked fine. We didn't know any difference. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was fifteen before I got into a house that had uh, electricity and running water. That's, that's when we moved. Uh, down to St. Joe from Mound City. Where did you, uh, where did you, uh, where'd you sleep? If the, you got five? Well, hell, we had, uh, we, you generally put, you generally put, you generally had two bedrooms and a kitchen, maybe a little bit of the old living room. Right. And you always filled the bedrooms with, uh, beds and the, and the girls slept with, and the mom and dad and the boys all slept in the, in one bed, you know. Fighting. Fighting. Back then, it's, it's pretty cold. You're happy to have a couple of guys with you. <laughs> the, uh, all right, so uh, how does the Marine Corps, how does the Marine Corps get on your radar from uh, from Missouri? Well, you know, we were uh, back in, in in World War II. You know, nobody thought about not going. Right. Everybody, I mean, it was just a, just a fact. You were going to go to service. All right, hold on. Let me let, let me stop you. First of all, where were you uh, on December seventh? What were you doing? I was in school in in Lee Summit, Missouri. I was down there. I was I wasn't living at home. I was working for a farmer down in Lee Summit, Missouri. How old were you? I was seventeen. Seventeen. You're working, going to school, and on that Sunday morning, what, were, were you? Did you go to church? Were you a church going kid, or what were you doing? Well, I was a church going kid till I got big enough to. Uh, Sneak off and go fishing. <laughs> so you were you were, fish, you were fishing that morning? No, I was probably milking cows. All right. And so what? What did? Uh, so when you thought uh, when you heard about it, I, as you just said, nobody thought about not going. Everybody everybody was going to go do their part. Um, did you know anything about the Marine Corps at that time we, in your life? I didn't know anything about the Marine Corps, and we didn't pay much attention to the war, you know, we were just living. It really wasn't like these wars now where you get 
you know, you all got radios and I read that damn thing and you hear everything that's going on, you know. Right. We didn't hear hardly anything. Unless something really bad happened, there'd be a little article in the paper about it or something like that, you know. But we didn't sit around and watch television and, uh, but most people didn't have them. You didn't have television back then. Wow. I right. got my first television. I went to come back from the service and went to farming. And I had the, I bought the first television in that farming area. It was a little, little video thing, you know. I'd sit there and look at that just amazed how they could put that picture on that thing. But <laughs> see, back then we didn't get the news like you get it now, you know. And some, you know, 15 minutes after somebody gets shot overseas, we hear about it. Right. Right. We just didn't. We didn't have that news. We didn't have that news cycle that we got now. No, no, that's not that's not a good thing either. I don't think the um, my guest this morning from uh, the great state of Nebraska is uh, Cal Humphrey, and uh, Cal's nephew Jess is a is a colleague of mine. I'd, I'd like to call him a friend, but I'm very careful who I call mm-hmm. friends there. Mm-hmm. Cal, but uh, uh, he was a uh, member of the. Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, uh, on the volcanic island of Iwo Jima. He's gracious enough to join us this morning, and we're talking about uh, where he was prior to the war. So uh, December 7th rolls around, and then how, how the hell did you get in the Marine Corps? Well, I'll tell you what, they just put me in the Marine Corps. Oh, really? Yeah. And I wasn't, uh, it says here I was 66 and a quarter inches tall, so that was a price that <laughs> And I probably weighed about 130. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the Marines were needing people. <laughs> <laughs> they were needing people. <laughs> Holy smokes. So, so 130 pounds at five foot six. Holy smokes. So they tell you you're going to be a Marine. And what'd you say? Okay. I said, well, hell, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Okay. okay. And so then where, where did they send you? Well, they sent me to boot camp in uh, San Diego, and I, I think that was about a month. And then we went to uh, that, that lion camp up there, uh, oh, what the hell, Pendleton. Right. And we were there for a few months, and then we went to Hawaii. And we spent most of our time in Hawaii up there on the King Ranch up there in the desert mm-hmm. training. Right. And, now this and is not- we had a lot of training. And this is, hey, Cal, this is 1942? It was three, wasn't it? Four, three or four. Okay. All right. Yeah. And the, and so you're you're in Hawaii, tra- and now you're training with the Fifth Division. Yeah, the Fifth Division, Twenty Seventh Marines. All right, and that uh, that gets made uh, for people that that are familiar with it. What a lot of uh, Carlson's Raiders, a lot of Paramarines uh, made up that. That was a pretty uh, that yeah. Was a, that was a pretty experienced group group that you walked into. Absolutely, I think that's why they put them in there because all of them came in. I think they made them all sergeants and. And corporals and things like that, because all of our squad leaders were were from that that group, you know, that was with Carlson's Rangers. What, what were they like? Uh, what were they like to train with? So, so you report, you uh, you know, you're fresh off the street, you go to boot camp, and now these guys have been fighting for a while. What were what were they like to work with? They were great guys. They were great guys. They had been, you know, they'd been through the ranks. They knew everything. They weren't up there, you know. Uh, like the, like when you went to boot camp, you know those those guys were jerks. But these guys were really good guys. They they knew everything. They weren't trying to show off. They they 
taught me an awful lot. And, and I, I had several friends of them that, that were really good friends of mine. In fact, I had, you know, my platoon sergeant was really a good friend of mine. What's his name? Uh, uh, the, my, what's his name? Yep. Uh, you shouldn't ask me. You told me that, you told me that, Les Jenks. You told me that. Yeah, a real good friend. In fact, uh, he stopped, he was coming, to, uh, his, his folks were in the, owned a mortuary in, in, uh, New York. And he retired when he came. He just, him and his wife were going to California. They stopped there and spent a couple of days with me in oh. Omaha. How long ago was that? Oh, God, that's been a long time ago, probably 12 years, 13 years, 14 oh. years. I don't know. I've been here 29 years, so it's been been a long time. All right. So when you get my age, you know, I'll be 91 next month. When you get my age, names and dates and times kind of go by the wayside. That's a long time to like have to remember. That's like a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like it's when you're young, you don't have to remember that much stuff. But as you get older, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that you got to remember. Well, I can still remember stuff I did when I was four or five years old, but a lot of times I have a little hard time remembering what I did yesterday. Yeah, I'm, uh, trust me, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. And I'm anyway. The uh, so, um, I, th- I think Jess told me that John Bazalone was in your battalion. John Bazalone was in the twenty eighth. 28th, I'm sorry. Yeah. Did you? I knew, I knew John. Yeah, he was in the 28th. How did you know him? Oh, I seen him up slop shoot, you know. We, we, uh, you know, back then, you know, they had those slop shoots on the, on the, where you could just go up and you get beer for 15 cents or something. A lot of people went up there every night. John was there quite a bit and I talked to him quite often. Quite often. Tell us but about he, him. He, he got nutty. You know, he got that. Award, right. and when we went into uh, evil, I think he thought he was going to do the same thing. Well, hell, he got shot right off the bat. Right. right. The um, what kind of guy was he? I mean, I, I oh, I, I thought he was a pretty nice guy. You right. know, well, of course, we was all about that snockered when we were together, but right. I thought he was a fine guy. <laughs> really. The um, uh, so you, so you do your training, and uh, and and then what's the most memorable thing in terms of? Either what you learned or in training from from the group of guys that that comprised, you know, your NCOs and the leadership of the 27th Marines. What's what, what's the number one thing they taught you? Well, they they just taught you a world of, of, of stuff. You know, the, how to take care of yourself and try not to be a hero and but do your job. And they they were they were pretty good. But the hell of it was. They didn't last very long. Most of them were killed in the 34th day on Ewo. In fact, our lieutenant was killed. Uh, well, the first one we had wouldn't get. We were all about six of us in a big shell hole there, and uh, he wouldn't get out of it when we left. When we had to leave, had to go on across that field. And, so he was a smart guy. Yeah, and then uh, the next one we got lasted about. Day and a half, I didn't even want to get to see him. And then we didn't get any more. We didn't have any more lieutenants all the way through when I was there. All right. The um, I have a I have an email for you. And if uh, if you have a question or comment, you can send a text message to seven one four six six one eight one zero seven. You can send an email to live dot radio at gmail dot com, or you can call if you want to ask Cal a question yourself. Seven one four eight eight four 
4294. Uh, the question says this, Mac, where did 27th Marines land on uh, the the morning of, uh, of D-Day? So, well, we had the, uh, the, the beaches were, uh, you know, like uh, colored, like red, white. We landed on red. All right. And red was was so so the closest to Surabaya was Green Beach. That's what's 28th Marines, right? That's where they landed. We we all all the first wave, which, which I was on, landed in Amtrak, and you know they ran us up on the beach as far as they could go. Right. And then we bailed out the damn things, and and that beach was, you know, that's all volcanic ash. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah, it, absolutely, it's soft and tough to walk in and run in and and we got in pretty good we got up next to the bank and then the, the higgins boats started coming in of course then the the, the old hell broke loose you know that, that was a devastating thing there that but for the first two or three hours let's talk, had, let's talk about that Kel. so so you you get uh, you guys were on you you guys were in track vehicles and uh, you're off the coast and the navy's plastering that and the Navy and Marine Corps Air are, are hitting the island. What were your thoughts as you were headed to the shore? Well, the, I was manning a 50-minute caliber machine gun on that Amtrak, and so I was standing up where I could see everything. And they were, the ships were, the ships were, shoot, there wasn't any airplanes. It was all, it was all, it was all naval. Naval guns? Yeah, and the, uh, the, uh, hell, you couldn't even see the island. And, uh, you know, it takes you a long time to get in. Those tracks don't go very fast. You know, you get out there, you all load up, and then you run around in a circle. Everybody gets lined up. And the time you lined up, a, the division's going to hit the beach. You know, Christ, you got people lined up for a mile. Right. And then, so we, we, we get in, and, and they take us up on the beach as far as they can, and then the Higgins boats start coming in. And, of course, the, the, after the, after the, uh, they quit, bomb, they quit shelling it. Right. But they, then the aircraft came in and started bombing it. Okay. The, the Navy aircraft, small ones. Right. And then when, uh, then when the, then all hell broke loose, you know, from the Japanese. And of course, they had that island all gridded off, and with their, so they were very effective. They just killed the hell out of guys. So you couldn't even see hardly see the. Back when you look back, you couldn't see anything. Part of the dead guys, and they had a lot of boats out in the water. And right. It was a really—I don't know. I think we probably lost an awful lot of people. I, I don't know any numbers or anything like that, but just the looking, it was terrible. Right. So and our mission was to, was to go straight across the island, across the airfield to the other side, and right. the twenty-eighth was to go and turn and go and take Sarabati. Okay. They took that in about three days, I think, and because and, uh, I remember seeing a little flag put up there about the second or third day, I can't remember what, this little bitty old thing. And they, then, they, then they had the big ceremony, you know, where they got a big flag up there and took the picture. Matt, can you believe that after 70 years they finally identified the right people in the picture here? In the last, well, I, in can, the last I can, yeah, I can believe that. You know, it was a confusing situation over there, no matter what you did, you know. Right. So, I, yeah, I can believe they 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 were all up there, and he was trying to gather up a bunch of guys to 
put that flag up. You know, he needed about two. What did he get, six, seven? <laughs> six. And uh, uh, to make a picture, and it, was, it turned out to be <laughs> great for him. Yeah, a hell of a picture. <laughs> it sure was. Be, but, yeah, yeah I, can, I can believe they could have made a mistake. Because there was probably... There was probably six, eighteen guys standing around watching, you know. Yeah, and they were up there. For, they were up there for a while. Do you do you remember? Did you see the first flag go up? Do you do you remember that yeah, at all? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't see it go up. It wasn't very high. It was only about three, or four feet high. And it was, looked like somebody something somebody carried up in their pack or something. You know, right. just a little one. But you, I, I told the guy. I remember, we were we were we were starting to go the other way, but we were still getting some fire off the Farabachi, you know, some rifle fire. And uh, I remember we turned around and looked at that flag, and I said, well, we won't have to watch our asses anymore. It looks like they've taken that hill. Just to answer the emailer, um, if you look at where 1st Battalion 27th Marines is on Red Beach, um, it goes from the south, uh, adjacent to Suribachi. 28th Marines is on Green Beach. Then there's Red 1, which is 2nd Battalion 27th Marines. Red 2 is, is further north. And that's where the first battalion, 27th Marines, lands, and it's it's probably right at the base of Airfield Number One. So there's a gap yeah. between Airfield Number One and Suribachi. That's kind of second battalion, 27th Marines, and 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 then 28th Marines. Uh, first battalion, 27th Marines. Is, it looks like you guys headed right across the southern end of the airfield, yeah, and we were, to the far side. We were supposed to go clear across that airfield, the far side, and the far side. The far side, you didn't go to the water. There was a great big, great big, looked like 20-acre depression there that was kind of sea level. You know, you go down another bank, and and uh, so that's as far as we went. We didn't go down in that depression there, and then we turned and went up the island. So you're you're this is your first time uh in combat, Cal. So yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so uh do you remember as you got on the island what the hell is going through your mind as you see you know you know, you're involved and you don't know it yet, but you're involved in one of the greatest um battles uh, of World War Two and, and certainly in Marine Corps history. What what were your thoughts as you were, well, you as know, you were coming off the beach? You, you know, you're you're so dumb, I guess you're uh, I really wasn't all that frightened till we got, you know, till we got on up there, and uh, and and you know, then then when you get into these battles and you get you get mortared, you know, first we lay in those goddamn foxholes and get to shaking our teeth and <laughs> our teeth and bump. And your flesh would even twitch, you know, you'd be so goddamn scared, you'd be terrified. Right. But when you got out, you kind of laugh at each other and go on, but it's a, it's a terrifying thing. And some guys get scared, they just couldn't, they just lay there like babies. They couldn't, they had their, wi- their rifles so tight, you couldn't hardly get out of, get them out of their hands and their teeth would be, you know, just like they're gonna pop. Their mouth would be so tight, but, it was a it was a terrifying thing, but the first uh, the first uh, day didn't seem to bother me too much because I, really I was too dumb to know what the hell was going on. I guess, but even with the guys dying, <clears throat> you know, we all kept we all kept toilet paper in our helmets. You know, when we go on these, right. we did that back in the states. 
when we go on, when we go out. I remember looking up there when I was on the beach and I see that toilet paper flipping down. I thought, oh my God, somebody's head blew off. But it's, uh, it's enough to make people go nutty in a fruitcake, you know. Did but you? that first day didn't seem to, I, I suppose I was, I just didn't know what the hell was going on, I guess. I suppose you're just kind of numb. When you when you think about that first day, what's the is there? Do you have a lasting memory? What one thing you remember? Anything more than other things on the first day? Well, I remember we had a foxhole right up in front of us, right on top of the hill. There it was a it was a cement dome thing, mm-hmm. and we had the the uh, Jinx said we got to take that damn thing out. We can't get out. We can't get over. It had it hit, but it did have some cracks in it where. I guess the bombs done something to it. And he sent a couple of the older guys, crawled up there and uh, got a flamethrower in it. So we got, we got by that obstacle in pretty good shape and we got back up on the airport and it was just littered with bomb, big, big, big holes. It was, hell, some of them was six, seven foot deep, you know, and 15, 20 foot across. I don't, wow. I don't know what kind of bombs made those, but. Big, big bombs. They were good for us. <laughs> Because we could kind of pop scotch from those from one to the next and get across there. We didn't have to dig any foxholes going across that uh, across that airport. We just kind of moved that and moved, you know, out, crawled around, and got over. And you guys got to the far side. And did you guys get to the far side on day one? We got there in about day two, I think it was. Okay. Pretty well. Day one, we didn't do too much. We had a lot of snipers. There was some snipers out on that airfield in, in some of those holes, and there was, I know there was a, a plane, uh, looked like an old plane that had been sh- scrapped or something. There was a sniper in. They did get a half-track up there and blast it out of there. That's when we got out our hole moved on out. And I remember they told us on the, on the the out in the ocean, they said, well, they didn't think the Japs had any guns on their do anything bad to their tanks, you know. Well, right. hell, the first tank that went up above us just got blown off the <laughs> I said, well, let's settle that. <laughs> I, guess that I guess that answers that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they do have an anti-tank gun up there. I think he thought he, I think they convinced those tank guys today, too, for that first one went up. The, uh, <laughs> my guess this morning is Cal Humphreys. He a member of 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, Alpha Company, uh, as it were, and landed on uh, Iwo Jima in uh, 1945. And uh, we're talking about the landing. I've got an, another email question. Mac, how did, uh, as, a, as a young guy, his first battle, he said he wasn't that scared that day, but I'm sure that he's, given the death he saw on the beach, uh, it had to make an incredible impression on him. Did he just put it out of his mind and, and keep going because that's what he had to do? The cow. So I mean, you, you saw stuff you'd probably never seen in your life uh, that day. How did you, how did you deal with it in your head? Uh, well, you, I think everybody dealt with it the same way. I think it was just just awesome. I don't. I don't. I, you just you were just there. You know, you were just there. I don't think probably your mind wasn't there altogether, but you you had a few things to do that kept you busy. We had to keep moving out. Try to move out. Uh, of course, and you could hear those goddamn 
bullets whizzing by you, and then they were still they were still uh, shelling the beach and shooting mortars at the beach. The thing that really saved a lot of us was those mortars went down in that pretty deep in that uh, ash before they went off which probably saved a hell of a lot of guys. So if it would have been normal dirt and they would have been surface bursting yeah, mortars. Yeah, this explosion would have been terrible. Right. We might not have gone on there. Wow. But, but it, I can't explain it. I guess your, I guess your mind kind of does something to you. I mean, you, what can you do? You can't panic and run back out in the ocean and you can't, you goddamn sure don't want to run ahead. So you just kind of stay there with everybody else and it wasn't anybody shoot at. Yeah, how did that, did that piss you off? You're, all this stuff's well, going on yeah. and there's nobody, and there's nobody yeah. to shoot at. What the hell? Well, you just, that's what I say. You just, you just don't know what the hell to do. You, it wasn't, and you, you couldn't dig it. Props on that crap. So you kept, so, so you, you kept following Jenks. Well, you just. <laughs> I hope Jenks. I he hope, was like us. He didn't go very far either. I hope Jenks knows what he's doing because I'm behind him. Now, I, you and I were talking the other day, and I said, "What was the secret to uh, you were you got to you were wounded on what D plus nineteen? I think so, something like that. Okay, and uh, and I asked you what was the secret to that, and you said, "Never be the first one out of the fighting position." <laughs> well, you need to look around a little. But we were all pretty careful, but still, still a hell of a lot of us got killed. Wow. All right. <laughs> there wasn't any safe place. There wasn't any safe place. When you got up there and you had to go back and replace people, you know, you can't do that hardly on the front line. So it was worse back there than it was on the front line because you had a company back there digging in. And, hell, it was, that island was, you could see pretty well everywhere. Those guys were a little on the high ground compared to when from the airports, you know. Right. Christ, you'd just get the poop mortared out of it. It didn't last very long, 15, 20 minutes, and then our guys would, uh, would find out where they were and start throwing mortars back, you know, and get it stopped. But, but 10, 15 minutes, mortars flying all around you is scary. That'll piss you off. You know how long? You know, you, know, you know, now we have a radar beam that we shoot across the ground, and when when they shoot something at us, it breaks the the radar where it goes up, and it breaks it where it comes down, and then we get the exact grid that they shot it from. So well, when, now that that has helped us to beat hell because it it generally take it generally probably took our guys. A, 10, 15 minutes to see it, right? locate them. Yeah, they had to see it. Uh-huh. Which and means they uh, got to they got to see enough shots to find that thing. What, what the hell is it? Oh, it's over there. Well, now, you can imagine that. Let me tell you how it works now, Cal. We'll have a, one of those drones flying overhead, uh-huh. and we have this, it's called counter-battery radar, uh, you know, laid out across uh, an area, let's say Fallujah or Ramadi in Iraq, and then they shoot. And as soon as that thing comes back down and breaks the plane the second time, you get the point of impact, you get the point of origin, and then you very quickly take the point of origin and you send it by computer to the guy running the drone. He takes the camera, and the drone goes right to that grid, and here they are standing there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, in less than 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then guess what happens at about four minutes into it? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the only thing I thought they did wrong is 
is bomb. They use bombs. It, it, I always told Les, I said, if we can get these guys to drop napalm, we'll be in good shape. But these damn bombs don't, they can't get anybody in any caves. They can't really hit those pillboxes. I said, unless they're lucky. So, napalm, explain why napalm was effective. Oh, hell, it, you know, they'd drop that stuff and it'd, it, you know, it'd spread for a long ways. And it, it'd cook them. It even gets hot, you know, and go in, in the mouths of those caves and stuff like that. But if they'd have dropped napalm on that island, they'd, they'd have probably hurt somebody. But all that other crap, I don't think it hurt anybody worth a damn. Breached a few pillboxes, but I don't think it killed very many people. All right. Now, Cal, I've got to take about a two-minute break. Can you okay. hold on, and we'll continue our discussion? You betcha. All right. From Omaha, Nebraska. Is it Calvin? Calvin. Calvin, that's kind of a Baptist name, isn't it? Yep, probably. <laughs> Calvin Humphrey. He's the uncle of uh, a good friend of mine, Jess Humphrey, and he's gracious enough to join us here on the Thursday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on the All Water Radio Network. We're going to take about a two-minute break. We'll come back. We'll continue our discussion about uh, what it was like to fight on Iwo Jima. More of that coming up next. You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Five minutes after 8 o'clock here on a Thursday morning. And uh, privileged this morning to be joined by a veteran of the, the Battle of Iwo Jima. His name is uh, Cal Humphrey. And a uh, member of the 27th Marine Regiment, Alpha Company, which makes him part of the 1st Battalion. And uh, we continue our discussion and uh, kind of talked about the first day, Cal. I've got, I got a couple emails, so let me ask them. Uh, Mac, uh, early in the battle, what killed the most Marines? Was it indirect fire, mortars? Was it machine guns? Uh, Cal? I think it probably was, uh, was uh, mortars and shells. Okay. It, it there was a lot of bullets flying around, but I don't. You can you, you hear them whistling by, you know, like kind of make a sound when they go by you. But I I couldn't answer that question. I don't know. Okay. All right. Next question. And, 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 and some parts of the beach was a lot different than others. You know. Right. Right. No. I mean, it, it's very interesting as you read different accounts of the battle. How much it's how different it is depending on where you were. Sure. Uh, next question is. Uh, now, how, how did how did those guys sleep? Um, it seems like when you read about the battle, they operated almost what would seem to be 24 hours a day because of the Japanese threat being all around them. Uh, how the hell did they sleep? You 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 had you had two men to a foxhole. Two 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 men. One was supposed to be awake all the time. We had to we had to be conscious of of. That banzai crap, you know, they pull everywhere. Right. Every night. So we and we had uh, the the navy shot flares. That island was never dark. It was, you know, you know how a flare is. It kind of you can just see. And uh, so we'd set our grenades up. We'd set our machine guns up. We'd set our thirty-seven millimeter guns in our line with the canister ammunition. Spread out our BAR men because we, you know, we didn't know when this band was going to come early in the morning or night or what the hell ever. Right. 
and uh, that's that's one guy was supposed to sleep, and the other guy was supposed to stay awake, which hell never happened. You know, we both went to sleep. But uh, hopefully, there's enough guys in a somewhere around the line that wake up and start shooting, wake you all up. But and we killed a, at the end of the thing. We killed a lot of. Jets at night, one at a time. I don't know whether we're looking for ammunition or water or, you know, walking around out there. And and, and my guys, when when I was took over the squad, what we killed. In fact, we killed on the last night before I got hit. I told the guys I had two little two recruits with me because they were just got them that day. And I said, now, I want you guys to aim, and I want you to don't shoot till I tell you, because I want this son of a to get up close enough we can kill him. I don't want to wound him out there throwing grenades at us. So we got him done. But a lot of these guys listening to this might think that old guy's not in a fruitcake. You know, you you keep you keep hearing all the time these people don't want to talk about the, the don't want to talk about the you ever hear that? You know, you don't oh, want yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, he came home and never said a word. Well, what do you, that's that's what I. I told uh, told one of my boys, you know, he said, well, did you never talk about it? I said, let me tell you something. What am I going to say to you? I come home and see your mom and say, well, or my mom and say, well, mom, I just spent a month without taking a bath or changing my clothes and ate K-rations every day. And I did brush my teeth once in a while. I thought I was going to have enough water, but I had to use the same toothbrush I cleaned my rifle with. How about that? How about that? Who the hell wants to hear that crap? How about this? <laughs> it wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then you run out of toilet paper, you got to wipe your butt with your hand and clean it off. I said, one thing we did have, we had that volcanic ash clean your hand up pretty good. Does it? Well, they use it in a lot of soaps now, right? <laughs> I said, you can't talk about that kind of stuff, and you damn sure can't talk about people getting blown up and getting their arms blown off and... That man popped over with some poor bastard bleeding to death. You can't do anything for him but give him a morphine shot. And you can't, I said, this isn't a movie. You can't call a corpsman because, first place, they probably couldn't hear you, and you wouldn't want to have somebody have to get up and get killed getting to you. And if he was smart, he wouldn't get up. So I said, it's just, it's just horrible. I hear these wanting to put these girls into combat. It's probably like you say. It's probably nothing like we went through. So maybe these girls can handle the front lines, but they can't handle the front lines like those boys had to in World War One. no matter where you are. Were you in the Pacific? Were you in the in Navy? You, in, in Europe, I, you, just, you just couldn't, they couldn't do it. I don't, I don't think they can do it, to be honest with you, Cal. I mean, it, you know, you might be able to do it back here, but you know that... Yeah, they couldn't do it, and you wouldn't want them to do it. For Christ's sake, who wants to take our national treasures and put them on the front line? <laughs> Yeah, no, and again, but you know, Marines will handle it. You know, just like if if you had a weak guy, what do you do with him? He, well, he's going to go work in the office. He'll be the company driver. He'll do this. He'll do that. They'll find something for him because there's not that many women that'll do it. And quite frankly, and you know, we're, in fact, we we're having an interesting discussion about that the other day. It's like so a squad leader. Somebody gets confused. What's a squad leader do? He grabs him and throws him. Yep. Right. And he didn't have time to talk. Hey, go and no. Yeah. You know, you can't. They just, so. they just can't. I'll tell you what I carried. I carried, I had the, I had that uh, M1, you know, was loaded that weighs about nine pounds. M1 grand, right? I had a, a 
20 pounds of explosive, and I always carried competition C2. I had three concussion grenades, and then I carried a phosphorus grenade because I like to throw those. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then you got probably uh, four or five uh, clips or six or seven, however scared you were, you know. Right. And you had, uh, you, you know, had your other little crap you're supposed to have with you, you know. You had your canteen, your bayonet, and your K-bar and all that crap. A woman can't do that. Yeah, well, let me tell you. Unless they're just tougher than hell. They got, well, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say that. A lot of them could. Well, but the uh, guys couldn't. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. But I you don't. They carry a flamethrower. They weigh about 60 pounds. Hell, I tried it. I couldn't even get, <laughs> I couldn't even get 10 steps. With the flamethrower? <laughs> and even if I could, I'd have said I couldn't. <laughs> Those things get you killed. The, the, listen to this. This is written uh, by a Marine Corps Sergeant Major who was involved in the testing that the Marine Corps did with female uh, with female Marines, and who, who all, you know, by every account, you know, did their best and and and, were, and are good Marines. It's just it's just not an easy task. He says this: the best women in the ground combat integration task force as a group in regard to infantry operations were equal to or below, in most cases, the lowest 5% of men in the group in the test study. So th- th- that was the best woman is equal to or below the lowest 5% of guys. Okay, now, uh, so what does that tell you? That tells you yeah. that, that it's, it's, it's hard work and... You know, the weaker guys struggle to do it, and, uh, you know, I'd say, and that's what the test says, that the lowest and, 5%. And he is right, because we had some of them, and we had some that couldn't do anything. One of the guys, there was two guys in my platoon, Les Yanks, the sergeant, and a kid, don't say his name, but a kid from Chicago, that he could, he, I don't think he walked a step on Iwo Jink. There was he was damn near crawled everywhere, and he wasn't worth a damn. I don't think he probably even fired his rifle. Wow. And I'll tell you something else. Probably, probably nobody would realize. Maybe, like in other areas, it was different. I saw very, very few jets. Very few. So how did you? Okay, so it was all it was all digging them out, blowing them out. Covering them up, sealing up the caves, and you'd see. If I, I told Les one day, I said, you know, Les, we've we've lost over half of our platoon, and I haven't, we haven't visibly seen kill over seven or eight or nine jets. You know, when we when we blow up a fox, when we blow up a a pillbox, we get them all, or you know, or, or some little structure they had built, but the right. ones in the cave, you might see one or two in the door, and then you'd throw a phosphorus grenade in there and then seal, seal the damn thing up. But I said, we're not, if, if, if these guys are moving backwards, when we get to the end of this island, it's just going to be all people. Right. Right. Well, let me ask, let me ask you about that. I have an email that says, Mac, I'm looking at a map of the battle, and 1st Battalion, 27th Marines, goes across the island, and then they turn towards the northern end of the island. Right. And they run in to the eastern side of Hill 362 Alpha, which was built like a fortress. Right. 
um, tell us about that thing. I've seen I've seen pictures and diagrams of that thing. They turned a mountain into a pillbox. They turned every every little structure they had into a pillbox. Every little structure. It, and there was back when you got on the the big end of the island, there was a lot of those not like that hill, right. but like uh, half as big and two third as big and. And they all had caves in them. They all had, oh, God, they had everything, every place. That that guy that ran that island, that, that Japanese commander that set that island up, he was a genius. Kurbashi. Yeah, he was He was really a, he must have been a genius. He must have been the best, best officer they had in the whole Japanese army because he did. they did never do anything foolish. They never, ever showed themselves. So he had a Extremely well trained, I guess. I, I, I don't know, but it was kind of like fighting ghosts. You know, you knew where they were, and you knew damn well they're out there because they're killing you. But you damn sure couldn't see too many of them. Cal Hunter, my guest here on that Thursday edition of All Marine Radio, we're talking about the Battle of Iwo Jima. And Cal, the other thing about Hill 362, which is what you're talking about, is not only was it the hill itself that was, you know, fortified. But all the terrain that surrounded it, you know, that ringed it, was shooting as you tried to close with the hill. You know, Marines were getting shot in the back, were getting shot in the side from, you know, from the cliffs off to your right as you were moving to the north. And then from, you know, on the northern side, on the far side of Hill 362, the terrain that there's a hill that goes up kind of behind it. You know, that dominated yeah. the approaches to it. So it was, uh, you, you read about just getting to it, to get to it. You had the fight to do that. And it just, you know, the tactical problem that he put in front of you guys, uh, as you said, he's a smart guy and absolutely brutal in terms of what it cost you guys in, in terms of casualties. Yeah. Well, when we, were, we got over to that edge of that island, you know, like I told you, we didn't go down in that big swale. Right. It was quite a quite a swale there. We went right around that, and when we come to the hill, the, the, the hill three sixty two, see, we stayed on this side of it, and went on went on around that curve, and that little depression was behind us. Right. And, I, and we were getting some shots from the rear. And I looked down there; they had a trench all the way, a, a kind of a berm all the way across that thing, and it had gaps in it. And they were they were they had holes they were shooting at us from back down there, and from on top, and and we could walk probably we probably had twelve fifteen feet we could walk if we stayed up close to that bank. But if you got if you got two foot out of that you got shot. I had a, I had a good friend with me. Red, his name was Red Cole, and I said, "Now, Red." Don't get up there. Don't get up there. Stay down here. Dampy didn't walk up there, and Dampy didn't get shot. Right through the side, went in one side and out the other, and I grabbed him and pulled him back down by me, and he said, I can't feel my feet. I said, oh, you, you'd probably be all right, Red. You just, you just hurt. But we had to leave him. They, they, you know, you just stick a rifle up. If they're alive, you don't put a helmet on top of it. If they're dead, you... Stick your rifle, stick the rifle in the ground, put a helmet on top of it. But uh, the, the, the litter bearers, hell, they was 
they could keep up. They just they took mostly the live guys and the dead guys a lot of time left and laid around for a day or two. But but we finally we finally took that. But that that devastated uh, pretty well devastated our company. We had we had uh, I don't know. They trained us, you know, to walk in single file and leave distance between us and. Yeah, you know how guys are, right? If there's if there's a little jump, they have to jump over pretty soon. They're all they're all bunched up in front of it. We we did lose one complete full platoon just right off the bat there. And from then on out, well, we we kind of was a little bit more careful how we did things, you know. But or I mean, one complete squad. My guest this morning, Cal Humphrey. Uh, he. Uh... The PFC when you went ashore, and uh, when did you become a squad leader? I didn't. I be I became a squad leader about the about the about the last week, and only because I was one of the. There was three of us left. A guy by the name of Groneman, and me, and a corporal, and we were we were up, we were up in those hills, and we were walking down through a. a we had about a 20-foot uh, canyon we had to go through, and the bottom of it was all eroded out. And, and they came to a little wall in front of it. It was about a oh, five-and-a-half-foot wall. Well, you know how you do when you – we had all new guys, but three of us. Damn, they didn't all crowd up in there, you know, right, right behind that wall. And I was bringing up the rear. And there was a cave on one side of it, and pretty soon grenades started coming over that wall, and guys started shooting out of that cave. And Jesus Christ, it was a mess. And and uh, I did finally get up there and kill a couple guys in the cave, threw, threw a grenade in there, and threw a couple over the bench. But it was just, you didn't have anybody. The groomer got killed right off the bat, and and that was. We got a lot of medals over there in that island because the officers were so close, they could see damn near all the combat, you know. They could see all these firefights. Right. And I got a silver star for that, that little episode, which wasn't anything but a bunch of bullshit because that kind of stuff you know, happened every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, no, it sounds like it did. Well, um, I got another email for you, Cal. Uh, Mac, as Cal, as Cal looks at the battle, what was the most difficult part of the battle, for in, in his opinion? Well, the, the the I guess the worst part was, you know, when you had when you had a, a, an object, you, you just had to move out and you had to take whatever you had to take, you know. And like you say, if they had a cave, they had it protected by a couple of pillboxes, you know. They, it, out to each side, and maybe some spider holes, and maybe another little bunker or two. But they were all pretty well tied in. So, so we just if you attack one, you got shot by the others. And 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 it was that was really hard and really tough. But that didn't bother me near as bad as laying in a foxhole getting mortared or a, or a shell hole. That's what that's what damn near run me out of my mind. In fact, I told Les one time, I said, Les, I'd just soon stay up here. I'd just soon not go back. 
Oh, I guess they rotated your your platoon and company. Well, you had to go. Yeah, they rotated the company generally because you'd lose. You'd get up there and you might lose a you might lose a, a, a platoon right. half, and then you'd have to move another platoon up, and lose some of them. Then you got to go back and get reinforced. You can't get reinforcements up there. You know, right. you damn, you got to go back. Right. It wasn't it wasn't on account of ammunition or anything like that. We always had plenty of ammunition. Just we get new people. water once in a while, but. Other than that, we had plenty of ammunition. And All right, so the mortars are, are the things that used to piss you off. That's out. what scared me, Landon. You knew damn well somebody was going to get, uh, they was going to hit some of you. Yeah. All right, another qu- another question for you. Um, Mac, did, uh, did, did Cal use the same rifle throughout the battle? Uh, those guys must have pumped a lot of rounds through those rifles. Did he wind up uh, getting a new rifle at any point because he wore his out? I've read well, stories about that. The same rifle the whole time, Kyle? Yeah, same rifle. And to be right truthful with you, we didn't we didn't really shoot that much. If we saw anything, or if we saw a hole, or if we saw this, or we saw that, we shot. Or like if we were going up to, if we we had to take the flamethrower guys up. You know, three of us would go up before him and crawl up, and he would come up right behind us. And then we'd get a, we'd try to get a, throw a few grenades and get a spot so we could get up there and throw that, put that flame in that hole of that cave or into the, and they, they'll shoot pretty far. Those flamethrowers will shoot 35, 40 feet, I think. And that was forever on Iwo Jima, right? I mean, when most of the engagements were taking, you know, place less than 20 meters. Oh, hell, they were terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, when you when you got in close and and you got the if once in a while those gaps would run out of those pillboxes and you you'd see them, you know they knew they were going to get burned after a while. Right. So they they very seldom ever came out of the caves. And we could seal those caves pretty easy. I got another email for you, um, Mac. Did did after hearing that he was wounded on D plus nineteen. That must have felt like an eternity in terms of time in close combat. Did he think he was going to get killed? Everybody thought they were going to get killed, and that's what I told the recruits when they came up to me. Well, the ones I had after I took the, the squad over, I told them, I look, guys, now the odds of getting out of here alive are just almost nil. So any time you see a something move or you see a hole in the ground or you see a hole anywhere or anything, shoot at it. I don't give a goddamn shoot your whole clip up. We've got a lot of ammunition, but shoot at it. And keep your goddamn heads down. Don't be getting up messing around and looking around and not paying attention. Look look in all directions but look forward. I did not wear out my rifle. No, it was uh, I left the damn thing. (laughs) Where did you when uh, tell uh, can you tell us how you got wounded? Well, we were uh, B Company had got wrecked that day, and and uh, uh, our captain said, "Well, we're going to have to fill in that line." So my my uh, my platoon had to go fill it in, and of course I was. Uh, let's say you take the, you take your squad to the last and go on down. You'll probably meet up with somebody down there on the end. Well, hell, we didn't meet up with anybody. I didn't see anybody for a quarter mile down there. <laughs> so I told the guys, well, this far as we can go, so we'll just 
we'll just stay here. I'd seen where a tank had turned around, you know, and left a pretty good depression. And I said, you guys can, we can dig in here a little bit and lay here in this tank track. And and uh, the, the next morning, early, a tank, the tank came up. They must have called for it. Okay. And a, a guy popped out of the hood, and he said, well, I'm looking for a target. I said, well, you're the target, you dumb bastard. You're clear up here on the front line. I'll get on the phone and talk to you. So he got back in. I got up and walked around the back to grab that goddamn telephone. No more had it in my hand, and the mortar started falling. And they killed my two recruits. And I think I was, the one that got me was on the other side of the tank because it just hit me in the upper body. And, uh, uh, of course, that tanky tank. <laughs> I, I didn't know this tank could put the rubber. <laughs> if I'd been behind it, he'd force me to death. So you got hit. It, you got it hit. hit me pretty good, and, uh, and not. I think I couldn't hear for about a month and a half out of that one ear, but it got me all on my left side, and but none in my legs or anything. So the tank had to be protecting me a little bit. <laughs> and I busted a vial, vial of. Smelling salts and thought, well, it's got to be a goddamn aid station around here somewhere if they had that big a battle yesterday. And I, I staggered back there and found one back there. So you you walked back under your own power to the well, to I the walked and walked and crawled and sat and rested and smelled my smelling my smelling salts. How long do you think it took it took you to get to the aid station? Oh, you know, I don't have any idea. I I don't know. It, you know, time just doesn't seem to make any difference to you when you're hurt. And I was hurt. Well, <laughs> I had a couple of... Those Japanese must have had a lot of powder and not very much metal because they put a lot of powder in their their uh, mortars and they put a lot of powder in their, their grenades and it busted them up into real small pieces. Hmm. And I had two pieces go in my chest. They left that in there. Still got it? Still in there? Yeah, yeah, it's still in there. And I had I had a piece, two pieces go through my helmet and stuck between my skin and my scalp. And a piece went through my arm, and then I had a pretty good piece hit me kind of on the chest there and dug a teacup full of meat out of there. Teacup. And uh, I just, you know, it, and, and I think the concussion probably was what hurt my ear. Yeah. And that uh, that kind of makes you a little bit nutty, so you just, you just don't know how to um, well, yeah, I went the right way, probably. In your case, nutty ear, right? Yeah, nutty ear. <laughs> so, well, Cal, look, first of all, um, I've got one more question for you, and then we'll let you go. But uh, can we do this again sometime? Can I give you a call when you come back on? Because... There's a lot of lessons that uh, we have to learn from from you, and we kind of heard the story for the first time. So I'd love to I'd love to talk to you some more. But I've got one more question for you, and then uh, okay, all right. Um, what makes a good marine? Well, I I think a, a guy that can kind of keep his common sense. You know, the first thing they want to they want to t- uh, preach to you and, and get in your head that you're ten foot tall and and bulletproof, and you're not. So those guys that know their know what they can do and what they can't do and still keep their goddamn common sense instead of instead of waving that flag all over hell makes a good marine. So don't lose your common sense. No. 
and to know and know that you can be just as dead as anybody else on there. Absolutely, and everybody else in the service is just as good as you are. A lot of them proved. A lot of them came back from from being on uh, leave and the weekends and found out that those army boys are just as tough as they were. <laughs> <laughs> In spite, of, in spite of everything you saw in the movie? <laughs> in spite of all you see in the movie. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Cal, first of all, I can't tell you what an honor it is the, to have you on the program here. I've, I've read about Iwo Jima and, uh, and, and the battle, I think, as a lot of Marines have, uh, most of my military career, and, uh, and stand in awe of guys like you who went over and, uh, and fought that fight on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, and... Uh, I can't tell you what it's been, uh, what a thrill it's been for me to have you on. And I am going to, hey, I don't give a shit if you tell me, yeah, don't ever call me again. I don't care if you say that. I'll, I'll call you and bug you and drag you back on this program. Yeah, this, this, this doesn't bother me much. I'll, I'll lay awake at night or two, but then I'll get in a hurry. Do you, did you have very many uh, mental problems when you came home? I mean, we call I never it, had any, I, I, but I'll tell you what I did. I didn't go to any conventions. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the goddamn place where they all went up, you know, got drunk with the, the, those. Everybody joined those. Uh, with the Legion and the VFW? Legions, you know, American right. Legion. Right. I joined and spent on my money, and I still do, but I, I don't go in the joint. And I don't go... You know, I don't go talk and war talk to everybody. I just forgot it and left them alone. And I just had two buddies that I visited once in a while. When I went to Phoenix, they both lived there, and uh, that was the, that was my the limit of what I did about it. Now I don't think I didn't dream about it a hell of a lot, but uh, uh, I'd get up and read a book or something. I didn't lay there and suffer. So I got along great. So you came uh, and, and came home and tried to get as far as you, away from it as you could. Just, just didn't, yeah, just didn't, didn't want to be involved in any of that crap. Interesting. All right, sir. Thank you very much today. Okay. Well. And uh, we're going to do it again in the not too distant future. So. All right, that would be fine. All right. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. That is Cal Humphrey from Unbelievable. Right, unbelievable story of uh, life on Iwo Jima, and you know you hear his perspective. They teach you that you're ten feet tall, but you can be just as dead as everybody else. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue a discussion we had yesterday about the we're headed for the Chosen Reservoir. Don Bennett's gonna join us here in a minute. More of uh, All Marine Radio. Coming up next, right here on the All Warrior Radio. Yeah, Iwo Jima to the Chosen. Come on, are you kidding me? This, I mean, look, this is a dream come true job. I keep saying that every day, but it is. More of that coming up next.
guys like Cal Humphrey that made me want to be a Marine. You know, when I I read about him, on occasion I would meet him. And uh, I grew up with a dad in baseball and I wanted to be a baseball player and I idolized baseball players. But they were not even in the same galaxy as guys who had fought for the country were in my eye. Yeah. And I would meet them and whether they fought in the Pacific or in Africa or in Europe, you know, I was just fascinated to talk to them and what they did and, you know, how they went and fought for the country. But, I mean, I was captivated uh, in when I was young with the Marine Corps. And I'd meet guys like Cal Humphrey and, and ultimately made me want to be a Marine. And so, again, I think in life, you learn how to celebrate the lives of people that live great lives. And, and everything I know about Cal said that he did. So, my privilege to have crossed paths and, with him. And I just want to thank Jess in public for uh, making that interview happen. Uh, it's just a wonderful experience for me. And all the people that have listened to it that have commented to me over the years about how much they enjoyed that interview. Um, yeah. So on that note, have a great weekend. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Don't be afraid to do something good for somebody. I will co- quote the Stoics. If you want to have a good day, go do something good. How about that? So go do something good. If I can help you help somebody that's struggling, don't hesitate. You know how to reach me. On that note, I'm out.